Welcome to The Modern Good, where you learn to build the world you want to live in, not just complain about it. I'm your host, Busy Gold. Conscious construction starts now. Hey everybody, I'm Busy Gold, and this is Shifting Into Consciousness. Today we're going to be covering a variety of topics, and I'm genuinely hoping to get through everything in the 90 minutes that we have scheduled. I will absolutely do my best, as always, to be conscious of conscious of your time, but also making sure that you guys get everything that you came for. I do have a bunch of questions that I've collected from Instagram and from other areas that this webinar was posted, so I'm hoping to get through at least a solid chunk of them by the end of the webinar. I'm just obviously going to give us a few minutes to get signed in. It looks like we've got a ton of people registered for this webinar, which is pretty exciting. Um, this is a bit of a different style of webinar that I've done typically in the past. In general, it's clear to me that the audience that I've had up to a certain point has really wanted to focus on things that are a little bit more linear and tangible. They understand that they're in some sort of perceived pain, that they want to make a change, but really even having to contemplate the idea of consciousness, what that means, and start to even tiptoe into some things that are a little bit more of the energetic side, intangible, esoteric, that can get a little bit more daunting. So it's my genuine hope that in this lecture, you can understand how they are very important to be discussed together and that the esoteric and intangible doesn't necessarily have to mean fear-inducing. Uh, you're going to start to see here why some of the fear kicks in when having to explore things that you can't touch or feel. I've been lecturing about energetic anatomy now for over 10 years, so I'm well-versed in having to move beyond the, the friction that inevitably arises when trying to wrap your mind around concepts that you can't touch or feel or cut open and look on the inside. I went to acupuncture school in my I guess, yeah, early, early age 20s, early to mid 20s. And luckily for me, I had already been on a seeking path, trying to understand energy, the world around me, how I fit into the world around me, etc. So when it came time to start to discuss some concepts such as traditional Chinese medicine, which is very nonlinear, completely intangible, to the naked eye wouldn't make any sense at all until you start to really study how all the energetic systems are connected to the physical. So in this way, I have a lot of experience, even from the medical perspective of connecting the dots between physical, tangible, and energetic, intangible. So I do hope that in this particular lecture, you hopefully start to drop your guard about exploring some of these concepts. And again, even if this is something that you don't really want to tiptoe into, the work that we do in Break Method absolutely has the ability to skirt around some of the conversations of the intangible while still getting you through some of the blockages that are currently keeping you stuck in a specific level of consciousness that we're going to deal with today. So um, it looks like a lot of people are signed on, which is great. I just want to give you kind of the lay of the land for how the dashboard works for those of you that might not have been on an online lecture with me in the past. If you look at the toolbar, through GoToWebinar, you'll see that you can actually raise your hand to be called on. You can also type in questions to me, and I can either respond to you privately through chat back, obviously being conscious of the fact that I'm also lecturing, so don't just think that I'm automatically ignoring you. Um, so you can type in a question to me. You can also 
um, type in a question, say that you'd like to have your um, your microphone unmuted, I have the ability to unmute you uh, when we go to our question and answer period at the end. Somebody's already typing in, will this be recorded? This lecture is recorded, so everyone that's currently registered, you'll receive an email that has the recording, so you'll be able to keep this. Um, okay, so when I see your hand raised, I will, if it's not time for me to actually call on you, I will try to shoot you a little chat message just to let you know that I've received your request and that I'll do my best to get to you toward the end when we shift to question and answers. Having said that, as I'm introducing concepts, if things need a little bit more expansion or detail and you do have questions on a specific topic or concept, I will take those questions that are relevant to the material instead of just the personal questions. So personal questions, let's push those to the end. Uh, I have a whole section ready uh, to handle those. But during the actual content, if you have questions that you want to type into me, go right ahead and I will do my best to expand on the content that I have in the webinar. One of the things that I know are one of my best skill sets is being able to explain concepts and tools in a way that is non-linear, right? So no matter how you learn or how you start to synthesize concepts, if you ask me the question, if I've somehow explained it in a way that's not hitting home for you, if I see your question, I'll be able to see where the deficit is and how I have to shift my explanation to meet you there. So please don't be afraid to speak up. That is one of the things that I think has made me a great teacher, but it's one of the things that also called me to be a teacher. Um, it's not about the accolade, it's about when I was younger, I knew that this was something that I was able to do for people and I would constantly step in in the classroom setting and help fellow students out and peers out if they didn't understand something. So please call on me for that. It's something that I enjoy doing, so it's not at all an inconvenience to me. All right, so I tried to give a general overlay of what we're going to cover today. As I said, I'm going to do my best to get through everything. God forbid we get to 530 and there's not a chance that we're ever going to get through all this stuff. Guess what? We'll just have a round two. Still free. Everybody that's on here, you'll be invited. So I'll do my best to get through everything. But if for some reason we get to 530 and we're not done yet, we will keep going at another date. So things I want to cover today. What is consciousness? I think a lot of people have different definitions of it or potentially think of it in a certain way that's not really a very grounded definition of the, the experience of consciousness. Then I want to pose the question, are all conscious beings conscious? I'm going to describe, at least in my view and understanding of consciousness and my work with consciousness, what the levels are of consciousness, how that experience shifts and grows with you as you age. I also want to introduce a concept of your thoughts having a certain level of fallibility, meaning error. I think a lot of us tend to operate as if our thoughts are objective truth. The way we perceive a situation is only one way. If two people were in a room and you both had an interaction and you walked away from it thinking that it was one way, to you, if the other person thought it was a completely different way, many of us would be very quick to label that person a liar because reality is only one way. So I would like to introduce the concept of non-duality and get people to understand that really many of our thoughts are not actually objective truth as we would have believed until we start doing the process of self-inquiry. And also start to look at 
where these thoughts are really coming from. What is the etiology of these thoughts? And are they our own or were they adaptive or learned behaviors from our childhood environment? I also want to help you guys start to understand what actually formulates our thoughts, um, starting from childhood, but also just to the day-to-day -day formulation of thoughts and start to introduce concepts of what the brain does and what the brain's primary goal is in childhood. That's really what actually is responsible for starting some of these thought patterns. In my opinion, it's a protective mechanism gone wrong, if you will, which will make more sense later on. I also wanna look at the concepts of emotional addiction and how that actually influences our behavior and our perception. Uh, and a lot of people's questions, I tried to kind of isolate some different topics at the bottom. A lot of people's questions were about how you actually push through this noise to regain some sort of control or awareness of your thoughts instead of just assuming that all of your thoughts are yours and should be acted upon. Um, also, discussing what is trauma, how it's experienced, and how to basically see if you've dealt with a traumatic experience slash if you have all of the signs and symptoms and you're present, but you look back and you're like, but nothing bad really ever happened to me. Starting to shift the perspective on what trauma means and how trauma actually goes into the body, because a lot of people have a misconception that trauma needs to, for something to be trauma, it needs to be one of these 10 things that falls on this list that are all things that we could all sit back and be like, fuck, that's pretty bad. Um, unfortunately, that's not really the way trauma is defined by our brain because the way we define certain things is dependent on what other data inputs were in our brain before we experienced the trauma. Um, so I wanna dig a little bit deeper on that because I think a lot of people miss out on opportunities to heal themselves because they feel like somehow the way they're feeling is invalid because nothing bad ever happened to them. You know, They might compare themselves to somebody that had a, a very clear, identifiable physical trauma that's easy to jump to the cause and effect relationship. So if theirs is trauma, then all of a sudden I have to invalidate the experience that I've had because I don't have anything that I can reason with to latch on to. So I wanna help people start to shift their perspective on how that functions as well, because I think it holds a lot of people back from the healing process itself. Um, I do see that a lot of you that are on this webinar have not ever actually worked with me before, which is great. Um, I know that at this point in my career, I'll, we have a large student body, and I think it's pretty telling that also from looking at the attendees, people that have done all of my work, gone to all my seminars, done you know four month lecture courses with me, even though this is perhaps not necessarily new content for them, although some of this actually is plot twist, um, it's interesting to me that they all still sign on. Like they're just, once you're in it, you're all the way in it. So I see you and uh, thank you for doing that. Somebody types in and says, I love that you speak to esoteric. I'm a medical, ISC, I'm not sure what that word is, now reawakened, light working, intuitive. I've divided deeply into shadow work with shamans and done a lot of work with myself. With that said, I'm deeply drawn to your work. Um, how would break method be different than work I've been doing on my own? Lauren, that is an amazing question. And I hope that you will remind me of that toward the end. So Lauren, I am telling you right now, if for some reason I haven't called on your question naturally in this process toward the end, 
will you please type in and remind me because I do want to hit that one toward the end. So um, to everybody that's brand new, I'm so glad you're here. To everyone that is there for everything I do, miss you. hope I get to see you at Break Live in September. I have spent my career doing a bunch of random yet seemingly unconnected then turns out all connected things in my life which I think for a lot of us our life goes through different ebbs and flows and we don't always know why things are happening when they're happening and once you start to do a certain amount of this reconciliation work inside of your own brain and really get clear on who you are and why you're here all of those bits and pieces and how they fit together starts to make sense. So I always joke that somehow I've lived 100 lives in my 33 years on the planet. Uh, every time I'm asked about certain things, I'm like, yeah, and then I did that, and then I did that. I don't know how I fit it all under 33 years, but somehow I did. And as you'll start to see in some of my other lectures, the concept of time itself gets a little intangible, esoteric, and pretty hazy. So I don't know how I've lived 100 lives, but I have in my 33 years on the planet. I started off in my career as a publicist and burnt myself out real quick, uh, unbelievably fast, got diagnosed with autoimmune disease, and kind of throughout some of that healing process where I dug into practicing yoga and trying to heal my body, I ended up becoming a hypnotherapist. I had the pleasure of working under Dolores Cannon, who has passed in recent years, she is arguably the most well-known past life regression hypnotherapist. She started a method called QHHT, which was not coined as such when I trained with her. That was something that was coined later on. Uh, but really the premise of this hypnotherapy technique was to not just get your brain into a hypnotic state to suggest things for your healing, i.e., create new patterns to build into your body so that your brain starts to reinforce this healing modality, but instead learn to access your subconscious and the level of your consciousness that's tied to whatever your religious belief system is, your belief system, I'm not here to try to conflict with that, but whatever would be connected to your beyond or source or universal consciousness to pull relevant information to help give context and explanation for some of the things that are causing friction in your present situation. So it effectively teaches us to get access to a part of your brain that's able to pull on all information over all time and all space that is directly relevant to you in this lifetime, in this moment. I had an amazing experience with it, had a private practice for a long time, had some experiences that changed me permanently once you see certain things you can't come back from that. So I think just my experience of some of these more esoteric concepts had to shift because I now had actual tangible physical proof in front of me. So um, I know that a lot of people crave that experience and then don't get to have it. I actually was deathly afraid of it and called it in because I was afraid of it. Um, but neither here nor there. We'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about manifestation. I went from past life regression therapy, digging deep in that practice, obviously having a pretty large career with um, being a yoga practitioner. I have one of the largest yoga teacher training programs in the country. Um, I have an amazing staff. I absolutely do not do it on my own, but really the crux of our program is digging deep into energetic anatomy and how our energetic anatomy 
can be influenced either positively or negatively by the way we move our bodies and then of course the way we think. Uh, they all function together and it's very much a part of all of my teaching across the board and obviously also break method, which is primarily what we'll be dealing with today, which is a program that I started, I mean, I've been teaching it in small workshops for years, but our first full online program launched about a year and a half ago. It's been wildly successful um, in just really completely transforming a person in three months. I have a bunch of practitioners and people that work with me in the program and you genuinely see one person come in and another person come out and it's pretty exceptional to watch. And I know that we all have that capability within us to get ourselves out of that wounded place and into the place where we're able to be 100% present and not always have that wounding push our brain to be worried about the future and trying to plan and keep safe, but also not be dwelling on the past to try to feed our emotional responses. It is important to do this work so that you can be present and connected and really contribute positively to society, which is my number one reason for existing and doing all the work that I do is I want to help each of you start to move through your levels of consciousness and break through all of your emotional trauma and things that are holding you back so that we can all work together to make the world a better place. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not thrilled with how things are going at the current moment. And I know that the vast majority of us chose to be here right now for a reason. So um, my hope is that with this lecture, you'll start to see what consciousness looks like, how you may have been theoretically led astray. I even posed some questions about who's benefiting from that and why we might be all having this shared experience culturally. Uh, again, feel free to ask questions. I'm here for you and I'm really excited for this lecture. So let's start off by looking at what actually is consciousness. So the way it's described in a, you know, more traditional setting, meaning the dictionary, would be the state of being awake and aware of one's surroundings, the awareness or perception of something by a person, the fact of awareness by the mind of itself in the world. So like the brain being aware that it's a brain in a body in the world, right? Just the layers. Uh, and that consciousness emerges from the operations of the brain. So when I look at this, obviously knowing what I know about consciousness and being able to personally reason and transform through things beyond just the dictionary definition. I would say that this kind of baseline definition would be the, just the experience of I am, like I am, right? There's nothing really beyond that. It's just I exist. So what I would like to get everyone starting to think about is that just the experience of I exist, that's, you know, not very much. I guess it means that your brain is turned on, but that doesn't really mean anything above and beyond that. So what is required to get ourselves to think about other questions beyond just I am or I exist? And that is really the goal of this first part of the lecture. Um, I want people to start to think about whether or not they think that all conscious beings are conscious. I just want you to kind of ponder that for a second. Think about just a day in the life that you usually do. Maybe you use the subway to go to work. Maybe you 
interact with a bunch of your employees. Has anyone ever had that experience of being out in the world? And a lot of the people that you're interacting with do not appear to be conscious. They almost appear to be more in zombie mode. I know I certainly have. Those of you that might have seen the movie Shaun of the Dead, it's a, obviously a parody, but the main character doesn't realize that an actual zombie apocalypse is happening because everyone's been so dumbed down and unconscious around him that he can't tell that a zombie apocalypse has happened. So he sees all these people that are just doing the things that they always do in their lives during the day, but he doesn't realize like now they've got a little bit of blood dripping out of their mouth. Obviously it's apparent to the film viewer, but I think it is a very good example of where unfortunately I think we've shifted to in our society and how unconscious in general many of us have become. I do think that in a lot of ways, technology, video games, um, our lack of connection to the natural world. And believe me, like I'm somebody that loves shopping, loves my cell phone. It's not like I'm some hippie that's out in the woods. It's like, you guys spend too much time on technology. This isn't coming from a place of judgment. It's coming from a place of awareness. These things are impacting our ability to not only be conscious, but expand our consciousness and absolutely deserve some extra attention. So when we start to look at what consciousness means and what it means to be conscious and actually shift deeper into your levels of consciousness. A lot of people will come up with theories of how those levels look. I don't think there's necessarily any one way or another. I know that in my work, the questioning concept seems to correlate best and make the most sense. If consciousness at its baseline is just, I am, what steps come beyond that? I usually, in my lecturing, try to establish the levels of consciousness almost in correlation to the chakra system. Again, this isn't about religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs, and if you think the chakra system is the devil's work, that's totally fine. Let's just say this correlates in phases of seven, and uh, it basically, if you look at it, how it functions on the physical and energetic side, the way these functions align forms an energetic torus. Um, the torus is the baseline structure of the vector equilibrium. If you know anything about sacred geometry, it essentially is nature's self-sustaining energetic system. It exists in all living things. And the way the chakra system where these energy centers really function together in this concept of energy moving and consciousness is the torus. So I usually look at these in terms of phases of development or processes or categories of development. So let's take a little move over to the next page. So these are the seven levels of consciousness that I teach in my work. And again, these might be completely unrelated to anybody else's work. One thing I will mention right now is that I practice something that I call intentional ignorance. And I know it sounds a bit awkward, but it's something that I've had to do to specifically safeguard the integrity of my work. A lot of people, you know, and I work with clients all the time when it comes to like my other business side where I help people with branding and consulting and growing their business specifically in the female entrepreneur space, although I've worked with plenty of male clients as well. I feel like so many people get caught in, if they are passionate about doing something, they go and learn the way everybody else in their area is doing it or in their category. And that can negatively impact your your message, your version of whatever that is, whether it's a product or a service or information that you're channeling. 
So the interesting thing about break method and all this work is that this is something I've been channeling in bits and pieces since working with Dolores Cannon starting at age 19. It definitely intensified around the age of 27. And now it's gotten to a point that's a little bit absurd. <laughs> I don't want to scare you at this point, but those of you that have seen me and done lectures with me know that none of this information comes through until right before I'm able to lecture, which is always a challenge for the preparation of being with other people's schedules. Because for instance, I'm supposed to be speaking at a gig with 2000 people and they asked me in a month in advance for my lecture slides. And I'm like, that's not how this works. So um, when we think about this process of consciousness and how these things all come to be, I actually don't research anybody else's way of doing it, not because there isn't value in their work, but because inherently by looking at what other people are doing, I wouldn't know if the work that I was channeling and actually synthesizing myself was accidentally influenced or taken from other people. And I value other people and respect them way too much to do anything like that. So my practice of intentional ignorance is not to be a dummy or to be disrespectful to anybody else's work. It's to make sure that what I channel and what I teach has integrity and isn't just a rehash of somebody else's. So um, somebody else might have something different than this. I'm not here to tell you what they do, but I'm here to tell you that from working with thousands of people at this point and lecturing about this content for a long time, these are levels of consciousness with the questions associated that make the most sense. So let's say the baseline level of consciousness is just, again, that experience of I am or I exist. This really correlates more with survival instinct and fear, right? You're not really able to think about any other conscious functions because it's really just very primal survival fear. Think about a baby, for instance, right? They can't really do anything to keep themselves safe. They're dependent on adults for water, food, changing their clothes. They're not really thinking about high level cognitive functions. Then as they age, then they start to understand the concept of differentiation. So then the internal question associated with the conscious process is, I am and you are. So it's not just I exist, which you can't, in that concept really think about anybody else. It's a very self-centered level of consciousness. Not that there's anything wrong with it, especially for a child. It's a natural phase of the development cycle. But then as they age, then the question becomes, I am and you are, like we are two sovereign entities and we are distinctly different. So then you start to understand the concept of differentiating and understanding this is really where, this level of consciousness is where the formation of identity would take place. As I, you know, in a lot of my development lectures and psychologic evaluation lectures that exist in Break Method, we talk about how this correlates with the formation of identity or the formation of that chameleon type identity, which is really based on impact from parents, society, religion, where effectively you are forced to reject your innate sense of self and seek out mimicking other behaviors in an attempt to fit in. This is actually something that really blocks this process of I am and you are. Instead, it it kind of pushes you into this like fake we, like we have to be a we so that I don't get in trouble. So you're not able to kind of stand on your own with your own identity. It's very clear in the parenting process or the discipline process that there are certain portrait, uh, certain personality traits and ways to communicate, ways to present yourself that need to be exhibited for you to be accepted and loved. 
this is obviously something that happens very frequently. I know I talked about it a lot in my Instagram stories. This is where a lot of things go wrong for people. And by the way, this experience of developing consciousness can be impacted by a significant hit to the one below it. So let's say you're experiencing a lot of trauma in your life. You know, mom and dad are always yelling, you're running out of money, no matter what you do, you know, you're always moving, you're every time rents due, you move to another house, you feel like, you know, you don't have access to food. Again, the parents are having that friction causing environment. If you're stuck in that survival mode all the time, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to be able to move your consciousness into a level two type of consciousness experience where you're really carefully trying to piece together who am I and who are you and how are we distinctly different. So just remember that the level before it can impact your ability or in this case inability to move on to the next level. Uh, when we start to think about level three, this would be something that is a, a dependency or a reflection. So this would be you are and if you are this, then that makes me this. So think of it as a mirror. Instead of I am and you are, right? We're two distinct entities. That happens in level two. Once you start to move into level three consciousness, somehow who I've just defined you now means something about me. This is where we start to see either the building of confidence or the complete dismantling of confidence. Um, this is where we start to see somebody feel really good and builds up about who they are and a willingness to actually be that out in the world or kind of a cowering down in a shyness. Once we start to go out into the world and we start to let our consciousness expand to what other things in the world mean about us, that is the first step in some semblance of self-reflection. Instead of it just being differentiation, it is an understanding of self in the context of what we see in others. So I think the the actions here i try to give you guys some clear action words obviously usually a lot of this content i have months to teach so i'm trying to give you something that you guys can take home and really chew on and think about and i will be giving you guys these lecture slides as a handout at the end so this would really be that reflection acceptance or seeking so it would turn to seeking if what is being reflected back to you makes you feel some sort of deficit about yourself. In this case, let's say what was reflected back to you made you feel some sort of deficit. We would then see that person's actions turning to seeking external validation. But I'm enough, right? But I'm enough, right? I'm pretty enough. I'm smart enough. Instead of actually just believing it and seeing it as a reflection, you're then taking one more additional step to make sure that that's actually physically or verbally explicitly told to you so that you feel safe. Then level four, and by the way, it is my, not assumption, it is my educated belief about these levels of consciousness that if we were to look in general at the population, let's use the United States, I'm relatively well-traveled, but not to other diverse cultural areas that I can speak in an educated way about this particular concept. But I would say that in the US, the vast majority of us don't really in a high level way make it past these bottom three. I think many of us get very stuck in this reflection, acceptance, and seeking where it's just kind of like, well, I guess I'm not that good, which is that acceptance piece. Like, I guess this is just the way it is. Or if you bump up against something that causes you pain, I'll use this example in a more new agey scenario. Well, I'm just a Gemini. I'm just a Scorpio. 
that's you just accepting shitty behavior. If you don't like the way that looks or if that type of behavior makes other people upset and reflect back to you that you're a bad person, that acceptance phase is where you're bumping up and just getting stuck and not willing to do the work to move past it. Nobody is just a Scorpio. Nobody's just a Gemini. You're exhibiting certain behaviors and choices that are being actually stimulated by your brain to get you to interact in your environment in a certain way. And that doesn't have to be that way. You are able to use your consciousness to move past it. Um, it looks like we've got a bunch more people writing in. Um, I find myself having a problem letting go of traumas that have been caused by other people. It makes you feel like you're paying for an order someone else ordered, if that makes sense. So thinking a certain way because someone teaching you that cannot help but be pissed at them and not let that go. But also it's because of the culture very individualistic and not collectivist. So I'm going to address all these questions at the end. So just know, Dina, I have your question, just so that you know that I'm getting them. We'll address those toward the end. Um, so I don't think many people, especially in the US, with expanding their consciousness really get past level three. And at an in the essence of Dina's question about collectivism and like thinking as a collective group, that's really where we start to get to with this level four, where now it's not I am and then I am and you are, or because you are this, I'm this, that reflection. Now it's a concept of we. And by the way, I think a lot of the word collectivist, especially in kind of the socioeconomic political sphere, I think actually has a negative connotation and rightfully so because it almost is like the dismantling of individuality and like sovereign sense of self. So the we are is not the dismantling of individuality. It is an addition onto individuality. So again, these are our phases where like they don't just disappear, right? So it's not like we move from I am and now we're at we are and I am ceases to exist. One is a building block for the next so that you're able to really expand into this experience. I know what I can connect and attach to you based on because I know who I am. So if you don't know who you are and you haven't done the work to really build that identity and know what is unique about me and unique about you, then how can we come together in a way that is symbiotic and helps us both grow as individuals, right? So this we are experiences focus on connection, attachment, love. And this is the process of moving from acceptance, just that, well, I'm a Scorpio, to actually focus on the act of transformation so that the we is healthy and vital, not just a we of what I coined in break method, symbiotic dysfunction, which is what most people experience in their intimate relationships. Every, you know, every person's emotional addiction is actually a response to the way their partner triggers them and your emotional addiction is their response that they need to trigger their emotional emotional addiction. So this is how symbiotic dysfunction works. Um, to a, an extreme degree, I could meet, let's say, 100 students. And if I learn exactly, you know, based on all the intake paperwork that I do about break, I could probably with 98% accuracy tell you exactly what your most common fights are with your partner, um, what your partner's source belief is, what his emotional addiction is, just based on you. Because if I know how you act, I know how you like to be triggered. And I know what that response to him is going to make him feel, even if I know nothing about him. So again, that can be like 98% accurate. And it's because this is a very scientific protocol. It's not 
It's not just like, mm, I'm thinking that it's not psychic intuition. It is a very practical approach. And once you start to see how these little, these little impacts, so let's say you're, you're cruising through, you've gotten through the level one, you're starting to move into level two, you get to level three, and all of a sudden you bump up against something that feels too challenging to push into, so you start to back off of it, you then get stuck in level three because you've just started to accept a bunch of things that really aren't necessarily true, or if you just put in a little bit more effort, you could push through them, so then you get stuck in that acceptance phase. Once we start to see how these symbiotic dysfunctions work with intimate relationships, you'll see that usually the couple is stuck on a specific level together. And a lot of communication shifts um, in break method, we refer to them as red and green ice cream cone changes. That won't make sense until we've done break method. Um, but you can absolutely shift a relationship dynamic without even your other partner being privy to it. You can do this on your own. Um, by way of exploring some of the ways your experience of consciousness is influencing your decision-making behavior, body language, etc. So it is important to get to this level four experience of consciousness so that you're even willing to transform something and not just constantly butt up against something that requires effort and just accepting it. And this is typically in an effort to come into a more symbiotic collective group that we so that you can actually focus on transformation together and be vulnerable um it looks we have so many more people writing in okay i know that everyone's writing in questions and i'm so tempted to read all of them but to stay on track i'm going to keep going i see all of your questions not ignoring them i'm going to get to them as soon as we finish this up so once we get past that place where we want to be part of a we and we want to be a functional symbiotic partner in the collective we experience we have to start to push into the areas that make us uncomfortable without just accepting shitty behavior then when we move into level five now that we're in this we this is really the establishing a boundary so i am right i am my sovereign thing we are our own sovereign thing meaning that we're sharing energy and these are the boundaries so for us to be a we these are the boundaries that have to exist for us to function in a way that doesn't basically kill us energetically um so to actually dig deep into this one you have to be in terms of consciousness able to understand that energy exists and that energy is exchanged in the interactions that is a communication thing that's a body language thing that's your words that's your physical touch all those things involve energy as well as even the intangible exchange of energy that might not even have a level of physicality attached to it and it must be protected and managed to make sure that is an even give and take so that both of you don't collapse in the relationship and have it go into a place of dysfunction so these consciousness concepts are really attached to awareness and expansion so a new level of not just transformation but to continue this process of transformation and these building of boundaries to keep our energetic exchange even and fair and mutually beneficial i have to constantly maintain a level of awareness and then we're able to start to expand how we exist together in the we sense then you move into level six this is, I am aware that my perception is influenced by the world around me. There are so many people that come into break 
that when they spout off about things that have happened to them or they're sharing really heartfelt stories, it's my job to listen, compare with other data inputs that I've gotten from certain paperwork, directed storytelling exercises, and, and be the objective listener to see where there are inconsistencies in their reporting. The inconsistencies in their reporting are not that person trying to lie. None of us, I mean, not none of us, but the vast majority of us don't go out into our lives like trying to deceive people all the time, but we still do. Um, especially before doing something like break method that helps you with that process of self-inquiry. I've had people go through an entire semester and only toward the end look at me and be like, oh my God, this whole, it's all a lie. I've been trying to tell myself, convince myself for so long that I'm this person because this person wanted me to be and I, I thought that I should be ashamed if I was this person. But really, every time I read through this, this is all just a crock of shit. These are all the things that I thought I was supposed to be, but they're not actually me at all. And I'm just afraid to write down the truth. Great. That's actually a positive, transformative experience. If you can acknowledge that how you were perceiving reality in the minute that you were writing things down, and maybe even the four months that you would read through and be like, yep, totally truth, totally truth. And then one day look at it and you're like, oh my God, I'm lying. Truth is not something that just is and objectively exists in one way. And especially when it comes to perception, perception is a very fragile experience that can be shifted based on a variety of environmental stimuli. So when we start to move into this level six consciousness place, and this absolutely happens toward the end of break method, no matter who you are, this is where you start to realize that your emotional addictions and things that have happened to you in the past effectively put a pair of glasses on you, right? So if I have red glasses on and you've got blue glasses on, everything we both see, I'm going to be like, but that was red. And you're going to be like, no, that was blue. And I'm like, no, that was definitely red. And if you think that everybody has the same exact glasses on that you do, you're going to go around thinking everyone's out to get you. Everyone's a liar. Everyone's trying to make me feel crazy until you go through a process like this where you realize every single person has a very specific set of glasses on through which they're perceiving the world and the more you can do to take a step back and objectively look at how you've been patterned to perceive the situation while also looking at all the information you know about the other person to respectfully and empathetically look at how they might be perceiving the situation you can start to communicate to them to that in-between place where you can actually start to move forward with productive intent this is one of the things that happens in break method that is so critical is this process of thinking without this concept of duality like right wrong black and white that doesn't mean that there aren't things that i think we would all sit here and be like in terms of humanity that's pretty fucked up that's not what i'm talking about this is that that duality thinking that things have to be all the way left or all the way right without accounting for all of the ways in which our brain has been shifted and molded and adapted just for survival and how that paints a very different picture that will make us in that moment temporarily think that's the truth and that doesn't mean that that person is a liar or a harmful person so one of the most amazing things i've seen in break are people that i would describe and this is kind of crude and harsh i've seen people come into break method where i'm like oh this fucking asshole like i really don't want to deal with them they're they have their heads so far up their own ass, they don't even see any of this stuff. And then, you know, three weeks in, they're like, oh my God, I'm an asshole. And I was like, okay, tell me more. They're able to actually, because of the structure of break method, 
they're able to actually see what everybody else is seeing and see it written and proven in so many different ways that seem unrelated that then when they have to see the big picture, they're like, oh my God, this is me. I'm driving the crazy train. And it's like, yes, you're driving the crazy train, but here's the good news. Now that you know you're driving the crazy train, you can get off the crazy train. And I've seen some people in break methods start off with some of my least favorite interactions I've ever had in the communication space to eventually flip to them being some of my closest friends and eventually even working for me. So anything's possible. But one of the things to get to this place is to shift into this level six concept of the universe or truth is not just left or right, black or white, up or down, that actual reality and perception of reality is dependent on that person and all of their experiences that put that set of glasses on their eyes. And the more we can learn to look at what glasses we have on and how that might be at odds with somebody else's glasses, we can really start to shift communication to be entirely more productive in our lives without somebody always having to be wrong or a liar. We can actually all exist together and move forward with kind of this more experience of universal consciousness, which comes from removing these ties of emotional addiction. So then level seven, this final beautiful level of I am connected and in constant communication. So I know for some of you that might have a religious upbringing, the thought that, you know, yes, you could be connected to whatever it is that you decide is out there. Again, not here to tell you what to believe about that, that you could be in constant communication whenever you want. You don't have to actually like physically go somewhere or sit on a pew or you don't have to be, you know, wearing white or put on a turban, whatever those things are that you've somehow been told it has to, it happens through this physical 3D object. That's how you can communicate with God. I think you'll start to see as you shift through these levels of consciousness that the more you understand about the 3D world, the 4D world, other dimensions, experience of reality, the space-time continuum, I literally could go on that subject for hours and will it break life. The concept that you have to somehow wear something or sit a certain way or do something physically to connect with God consciousness or whatever it is beyond is absolutely asinine because you're talking about something that is not 3D, like God doesn't, you know, look like a, a can that you can physically touch. So to think that you'd have to do something in the 3D to do this makes no sense. So it, it is the goal that moving into this level seven place of consciousness, you understand that this process is all happening internally. Once you start to understand who you are, that you're distinctly different from somebody else and that your definition of that person then reflects back, means something about you, then we can be this thing together. Then we've got to take precautions and steps to make sure energy is functioning symbiotically so that we can start to perceive the world around us in a more complete, holistic way. Then we can actually be connected with things that are not necessarily in the form of a physical can. That's when we're truly connected and the whole world, the whole universe becomes our oyster. So it's important to note that this does not, you know, and again, I'm not trying to conflict with what you've been taught or what you believe, but in my experience in this work, it is an important thing to remember that that connection, that connectivity for communication and asking for things, praying for things, or let's say manifestation, that comes from this place of realizing that once you've gone through all these steps of opening up your consciousness, it's literally opened you anytime that connection is consistent. And I think far too many people get confused into thinking that it can't possibly be that way.
I love how communicative everybody is in the sidebar. It's making me really happy because usually, you know, in the beginning when people don't quite know you, they're hesitant to ask questions. This is amazing. We have so many questions to answer toward the end. Okay. So now that we've gone through levels of consciousness and what that experience looks like, let's think about it in terms of if we know that, let's say we're stuck in like level one or level two, what are some things that we can do to start to push those boundaries of experience to see if we can get past that blockage? These are some simple things. And again, you know, they might sound simple. If you end up working with them in break method, you know, the program itself is three months and people spend a lot of time understanding the concept, applying the concept, and then actually applying it to their practical everyday life to see what the changes are. So some of these things, you can totally take them, run with them, see if you can make them work for you. I will give you some simple tools to take home. And then obviously, if this is something that you're wanting to dig deeper into and do the full thing, um, I'm going to give you guys info about that at the end. So step one would be to engage in some sort of honest, raw, and objective self-inquiry. This can help you establish a baseline of cause and effect relationships. So I like to explain this as the vast majority of people, you know, we can all sit here before we've done any sort of self-exploration. And even some of us that have done self-exploration, you can look back at the last 10 years and been like, okay, what are the, you know, 20 most painful, suffering, shitty experiences I've had? And if you look at those and then you say, okay, what state of mind was I in when I either brought, called this relationship into my life or when I made this decision that resulted in this, you can start to see kind of, if we were to almost look at like a heart EKG, right? You get a reading, it's like, this is what your heartbeat is doing. We can actually look and see, this is what your mental state is doing. And these are the commonalities in what actually triggers these spikes in pain and suffering. If you're able to do that honest self-inquiry and say, okay, what, what mental state is actually responsible for this pain and suffering? What role did I play in it without being so quick to just assume that it was the other person's problem? I can't tell you how many people have come to break method thinking that they were coming there to get empowered to leave their shitty husbands. Seriously, it happens all the time. Halfway through, they're like, oh my God, I'm the asshole. And I'm like, it's not that you're the asshole, but this is a two-way street. It's not like your terrible fucking husband is just, you know, all of these things. And that somehow lives in isolation. Relationships are a give and take. You're sharing energy. You have to be able to define that we and figure out how your interactions with each other are fueling each other's emotional responses for the good and for the bad. So once we start to look at all of these things that have caused us pain and suffering, what roles we've played in all of these things, what mental state we were in, what the commonality is in emotions. Like I'm just a crier or I'm always, you know, prone to rage. Everyone has their thing. You can start to see what areas you might need to dig deeper. And in a very short summary, start to think about where those processes started in your early childhood. Because even if you experience a trauma much later on in life, the way you experience that trauma is still influenced by the glasses you have, remember glasses, you have on by your childhood experience. So you and I in adulthood, you and I, you, all the thousand people that are on here, and I could experience the same trauma in our adult life, but because you and I have both experienced something completely different in our childhoods, you and I would define that traumatic experience, even if it was literally detail for detail, exactly the same, 
we might define it in a completely different way and also respond to it emotionally in a different way. So you have to remember that when we're looking at this baseline of information, we're not just looking for, you know, well, this painful moment was because that person was a dick and like they didn't, you know, they didn't take care of me or they were always selfish and always going out with their friends. It's so tempting to get pulled into the details, right? That's that emotional narrative. Well, this is the way I was wronged. Okay, I challenge you to draw that out. Step way back, squint. What are the commonalities? Without pointing fingers or passing blame to somebody else, what is the commonality in your mental state and what either attracted you to that person or led you to make some decision that resulted in pain or suffering? That's step one. Step two, commit to thought mapping. I will go through thought mapping in a second. I highly recommend doing this for at least three to four days. It is a time-consuming process, so, you know, just keep that in mind. It's important as you're doing thought mapping to not get so pulled into your story. Um, if you've read any of my work on my website, breakmethod.com, I talk a lot about how important it is for us to not buy into our own stories, buy into our own narrative, and get stuck in this almost romanticization of how we're living our lives or in some ways like romanticizing a painful breakup or the way something happened in the past it's not productive and it's not data driven the way our brain really needs to be functioning our brain is a computer so you know it's not like computers run off of hopes and dreams and stories you wouldn't like build a chipboard for a computer with like a bunch of stories like this is how we think it's gonna run no it's data driven factual so Remember not to get pulled into that story when we're doing this thought mapping process. Um, here we go. And if you have a pen, you can write this down because even when I give you these lecture slides, it's not going to be written down. So you're going to have to listen to the words coming out of my mouth. So what I suggest is starting first thing in the morning. For many of you that deal with anxiety or depression, this is actually one of the worst moments of the day for you, um, mostly because you're in so much pain and suffering that you're questioning your actual existence. Like if life sucks this fucking bad, the moment you open up your eyes, you're like, oh shit, this again. And it starts the whole slew of all of these emotional addiction patterns and questions you have about why you're even here questioning your humanity. So important to try to start this right from the first thought in the morning. It'll also be interesting as you do this thought mapping, when you're complete with it and you start to look at what had happened the day prior and how your reconciliation of how the day before went can slightly shift forward your first thought when you wake in the morning. Um, it's They're all diagnostic in nature. So I urge you to start to think of what happens in your day as diagnostic so that you can learn from it, to think about what things need adjusting so that you can start to gain more control over your consciousness instead of just being a victim of your own thoughts and own shitty feelings and inner critique, which is what most people do throughout the day. So you're going to take either a piece of paper, your notes on your phone. And obviously I don't want this to be something that like disrupts you from a job and gets you fired. That's not the goal here, but your job is to become an observer and listener of your thoughts instead of being the thinker. This is a challenging one for a lot of people because they feel like if they have a thought, like that's my thought. It's not really. 
we have a lot of thoughts that pop around in our brain that are actually adaptive behaviors and voices of other people that are trying to keep us safe, which we're going to get to in a moment, which really it's not actually meant to keep us safe, but it's built off of a childhood trauma. So we've got all these voices and cues and directives floating around in our head that most of which the average person should not be acting on. You should probably get yourself to a point where you hear it and you're like, wow, inner critic, you're a dick. There's no way I would naturally be a dick to myself. Maybe I should figure out why this voice is here and how to get rid of it. But unfortunately, I think a lot of people just subscribe to the fact that like, that's how everybody's head is. I'm here to tell you, that's not how everybody's head is. My head used to be that way. Now it's not. When I'm not actively thinking about something, there's quiet. It's this weird thing that I never experienced until going through break method and getting to this point of channeling this work. You can get your brain to a place where you just are present. It's a bizarre concept. It's definitely possible. It's definitely moving into that level six, level seven consciousness. But all of your fear programming, all of your emotional trauma from childhood, it's constantly sending out these little messages and directives and critiques in your brain that you've unfortunately subscribed to as your thoughts. The goal here with thought mapping is for you to listen to all these thoughts without acting on them. I want you to start to listen and actually map them chronologically. So let's say, and I'm giving a totally hypothetical example, let's say somebody wakes up and their first thought is like, fuck, I have to do this again. Like, I'm a fat piece of shit. I'm exhausted. I should just go back to sleep. I'm going to lose my job. If I, if I go back to sleep, well, I'm probably going to lose my job anyways because I suck at my job, right? So just to show you an example of like one that will actually give way to the next to the next, we're talking about mapping out the domino effect that is your inner monologue. For most people, this inner monologue looks pretty scary. And if we were to actually write it down and then go back and read it, you'd be like, wow, my brain's a dick. And it probably is, and it doesn't need to be that way. My brain is not a dick to me. There are moments in my life, I call them perfect storm moments where it doesn't matter how much work you've done, if all of your stressors come in at the same time and then you're like out of your comfort zone, you'll notice once you get rid of it, you'll notice that pop back in. You're like, ah, I'm equipped with the right tools to judo chop this away from me, but shit, I can't believe I used to live my life that way. That's so exhausting. So I want you to map these thoughts and be as specific and make sure it stays in the chronology so that after you've written everything down, you've done this for three days, I want you to go back and let me show you an example. I should have thought of this before I did this. I usually have people do it like this. Can you see anything like that? There we go. So on, and yes, I have the worst handwriting ever. So on one side, this is where you would do the chronology, right? So you do like this time in the morning, like I woke up and then these were the thoughts that all happened. And then I went to work and then I caught myself with my idle, idle mind chatter. And then these things happened, right? So you get through your whole day, making sure it's chronological. And you do this for three days. Then after the three days, you go back through and knowing what, important or pivotal moments happened during those times, you'd actually try to make sense of this. Like, what do you think was going on in your head? What things happened in your physical environment that you think influenced this so that you can, this is like your understanding of this instead of just the map itself. So thought mapping can be really helpful for you to see, A, what's actually going on in there, B, 
what an asshole your brain is so that you get more motivated to stop the insanity. Because when it doesn't get committed to paper, you kind of pretend like it's not really a thing. Or like I said, some of you actually just kind of resign to the fact that like everybody's heads are like that. No, we're not all that fucked up. And many of us used to be that fucked up or more and have pulled ourselves out of it. So I don't want you to get stuck in that level three consciousness where you're just like, guess I'm just going to be like this forever. Just going to accept it. It doesn't have to be like that. It starts with thought mapping so you can look at the fuckery that is your brain and get motivated to move past it. Three, I went like this. Two, three. I heard one of my employees laugh because they're all having a viewing party in the other room. Number three, I don't know how to count. So yay for me. Totally trust me. I don't know math. Um, number three, remember that most of your thoughts are actually based on a flipped hierarchy of influence. I, um, I teach a whole lecture on relationship strategy and how, for the vast majority of us, the way that we actually label another person's, you know, truth, for instance, and how we choose to respond to their truth is actually based on what I call flipped hierarchy. So instead of actually responding to their actual words first, most of us actually respond first with assumptions, right? Like, what do we think is happening? Like, they might have said cat, but did they really mean dog? Because I've seen them with dogs before. And it's like, well, they, they fucking said cat. And you're like, nope. It just feels like they want to say dog, right? So you're going assumptions first, even though their words just said cat. You're like, it feels like dog. And then you start to look at their body language. And it's like, their body language looks like they're lying about it being the cat. And then you start to look at all the past experience. I've seen them walking around with the dog, so I don't know why they're talking about a cat. You keep going down really to where their actual words and then their actual like experience with you, their past experience and what's happened in the past, not just your assumption about that or conclusions you're jumping to. Instead of actually going with the tangible, your brain's deciding, I'm just gonna go with all these made up things first and respond this way. And if we can stop doing that and actually take people at their word until proven otherwise and have interactions that are based on tangible interaction and not assumption, we're already going to start to see our lives change quite a bit. This is just one very simple way to push yourself into consciousness because, you know, we got to take people at their face value until we see them do something different. We can't always be jumping to conclusions and deciding we know what their truth is better than them. It gets us into a really precarious position. So let's shift to, we've talked a lot about consciousness. Let's talk about unconsciousness, right? Obviously many of us can, you know, agree on the fact that when you are barely breathing or passed out, you're unconscious, but we mean also just no cognitive function. So you might be like kind of awake and kind of with it, but there's no cognitive processing happening. The part of the mind that is inaccessible to the conscious mind that affects behavior and emotion. So you might just be kind of like void of stuff. The cognitive process is not happening. So I deal with this a lot because in my practice, I work with a lot of PTSD, panic attacks, anxiety, the type of depression that literally keeps you debilitated in bed for months and months. Um, I've had literally everything under the sun. I've had a surprising number of clients that either are currently in cults or have come out of cults. Obviously have a lot of experience with this. The practical examples of this diminishing level of consciousness usually come from being stuck in level one consciousness for so long where you're just in survival mode 
for so long that your body can't handle it anymore. And eventually you move to blackouts, dissociation, severe anxiety, panic attacks, severe fatigue, shutdown, apathy, which is just like the experience of no emotion whatsoever, sleep paralysis, narcolepsy, or any experience that shuts down your cognitive processes, even temporarily. Um, I see this a lot with PTSD. Basically what happens is if your sympathetic nervous system is activated for too long, your body is unable to resume regular functions without basically having a shutdown. Think of it as a computer that gets too hot and you just have like a restart feature where it's like it needs a timeout, a cool down, and then it's gonna reboot when it's ready. Many of these are examples of that. Um, so if you look at what actually pushes somebody into this experience of unconsciousness, like I just mentioned, the sympathetic nervous system overload is absolutely one of them. This most commonly leads to blackouts, dissociation, which is where you basically separate from your sense of self. So like that, even that feeling of I am is all of a sudden gone. You're like, I think. I don't know. I feel like I'm multiple people. I don't exist anymore. That's dissociation. Um, or people can have a, an experience of feeling like their soul self and body self are like splitting. Either way, if you look at it in terms of the questions that I outlined, it's a fragmenting of that experience of I am. This can also cause anxiety or shutdown. Also, what can happen how we talked about in the thought mapping place that that noise and chatter of your inner critic and all of the you know, attempts to label your environment to keep you safe that really are just kind of asshole things to say inside your brain, that noise can become so intensified that you actually lose touch with your own consciousness. Like that other thing, that other voice gets so loud that you forget who you are and who you were without all of those additional voices. This can happen a lot with trauma later in life, like PTSD what you always knew about yourself and you knew what your inner voice or inner monologue sounded like. And then all of a sudden you get all those trauma messages on top of it. You can, that noise can basically rise so much that you lose touch with who you are and that can push you into that dissociation. Um, in many cases, it's referred to as dissociative personality disorder. This can also be combined with blackouts. Sometimes you dissociate and then you blackout and then you come back and try to reintegrate. Cognitive dissonance, which is having your belief system and concept of reality bump up against something that is in direct conflict. So you either have to let all of your sense of reality break down and rebuild with this new belief or instead lose your fucking shit, which happens to a lot of people. Um, often when you have that feeling of losing your shit, not wanting to push into the discomfort, you move into a phase of dissociation, panic attacks or shutdown. So to anyone that might be out there having experienced any of these things, very common, totally fixable, as is anything, especially if you look at everything I've been trying to explain to you about consciousness. If you get yourself stuck in a certain place and you just say like, that's just the way it is, are you ever going to move out of it? No, there's no, if you're unwilling to push into that moving up of the levels of consciousness and doing the work required in each one to keep moving, nobody else can do it for you. No, there's no magic pill that somebody's going to give you that's going to do all this work for you they might take some of the pain away for a second or dull it or put a band-aid on it but it's not going to actually do the work for you to move into a higher experience of consciousness which directly correlates with a significant decrease in your experience of pain and suffering because that's not the way life is supposed to be contrary to how a lot of buddhists would have you believe which is something that's beyond my comprehension 
all life is not suffering. That's not the point. It's one of the most disenfranchising victim victim mentalities I've ever heard of because it takes away any ability for you to step into a sense of responsibility. If all life is suffering, then why does it matter what I do? Like all life is suffering. We all choose to come here and get through our suffering and like try to find some peace and calm in the suffering. Well, what about doing your part to go through your spiritual consciousness and awakening to help other people stop suffering? It's like the antithesis of Buddhism. So just some food for thought. These are the things I think about in my day-to-day life. So for those of you that might be experiencing some of these things, I want you to remember that the process of healing isn't easy, but it's absolutely possible. I have personally gone through it with hundreds and hundreds of students that have been dealing with any of the above things that cause this shifting out of your actual consciousness and dissociation from that experience of I am and I exist and I fucking deserve to exist. Because at a certain point, a lot of you that feel this way, you must question your existence or like, why did I choose this? Or does it even fucking matter? Right? It's an important existential question to be able to dip your toes into as you start the healing process. So um, let me look and see how many, oh my gosh, there's so many more questions. Okay, there's so many questions. I love, I love how happy and engaged you guys are. Like a lot of people are kind of applauding and high-fiving and then a lot of people are asking really amazing critical thinking questions. So thank you for being so engaged. I really appreciate it. Uh, we're pretty close to question and answers. So what is emotional wounding and are we, and I mean we the collective, like as a society, focused on healing or suffering? This is something that I personally think about a lot in my work. Um, I've written about it a lot on bravemethod.com. And I think for many, many of us, definitely societally speaking, not everybody at the individual level, but as a society, we're definitely stuck in the bonding phase around bonding about our woundedness. Like, I'm fucked up and you're fucked up. Oh, yay. We're not alone. Like, we can just all be fucked up together. But there's not a lot of energy put into the motivating phase to get out of it. A lot of people, I think, in our society get stuck in the bonding about not being alone anymore in our woundedness without that same energy put into motivating to transform and be done with it, right? They're just kind of, there's like this resigning to the fact that like, we're just all going to be broken forever. It's the same kind of thing with like the Buddhist concept of all life is suffering. Like, does it have to be that way? No, I, I don't see the point in life if it all had to be suffering. And again, I'm not here to rag on anybody's particular thing. I'm just saying simply from looking at a belief standpoint doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So let's think about this idea of an emotional wound being a broken elbow, right? We can all think of what it would feel like to have a broken elbow, right? Let's say you go skiing, you're having the time of your life, on the last run, you eat shit, hit a tree, and you break your elbow, and it's colossally painful. You've got to look at your elbow and be like, oh my god, it hurts so bad. You're going to look at your elbow, and you're going to immediately go to the hospital to put a cast on so that you can heal your elbow, because going through life with a fucked up elbow, very inconvenient, not fun. Eventually, it's going to heal all fucked up, and the bones are going to adapt, and it's never going to look right. Now, I think everyone can be on the same page about the fact that if you had a broken elbow, that's exactly what you would do. Here's, unfortunately, what happens. 
let's think about an emotional wound. So one that's not quite tangible. Like we didn't break our elbow, but we broke a deep piece of our soul, psyche, and personality, right? This happens all the time. That pain still goes to our brain that's like, help, help, we have a problem. Help, help, we need to be, we need to be healed. We need this to be fixed, right? So many of us in our culture right now, instead of going to fix it, they're like, nope, I can't do it. Nope, see, broken elbow. Yeah, I know, it's just, I got a broken elbow. But I found some other people, they also have broken elbows and they're just really, they're working hard to get through life. So, you know, broken elbow. Oh, well, can you take responsibility for this and, you know, try to get over this obstacle? I wish I could, broken broken elbow, you know? But I'm part of a support group and we all have broken elbows and I'm, I'm feeling good about the fact that I can't do that. So you just start using it as an excuse to not do shit with your life. But you've got a group of people and we're all bonded around this broken elbow, but you haven't actually gone in this analogy to the hospital to heal your fucking elbow. Because societally speaking, you've found that you can actually skirt around certain things in your life because you have a broken elbow. You don't have to actually move into some of the painful things. You don't have to move into some of the things that actually give you the opportunity to heal your brain and actually get through that cognitive dissonance and prove to yourself, even though that happened one time, it's not gonna happen again. Think about somebody that broke their elbow and then after that never wants to go, let's say they did it on a horse, right? And then from that point forward, they're like, fuck that, I'm not going on a horse. Eventually, that person should get on a horse to prove to their brain that not every time you get on a horse, you break your elbow. But a lot of people, especially children, would be petrified to get back on a horse if that's how they broke their elbow because their brain's trying to keep them safe. So if you want to learn more about this, because I'm going to go into deeper aspects of this in a second, but if you want to learn more about these five stages of healing an emotional wound and how it gets all messed up, it's on breakmethod.com. Um, it's called the five stages of healing an emotional wound. It's definitely a good deep dive and it looks kind of more at the generational historical experience of that. Um, so I'm going to get back to the emotional wounding thing in a minute, but one of the things that I think is interesting when we look at this concept of how people in our society right now are not really healing their emotional wounds, they're like acknowledging it, then finding a bunch of people that also have the same emotional wound, they're like, cool, we're all together, let's talk about all the ways we've been wounded and support each other, and that's all great. That is one step, right? At least now, generationally, emotionally, we don't have to hide from our pain. We can actually acknowledge that we've been harmed, which is great because our grandparents and our grandparents' grandparents were certainly not able to do that. So now we're able to acknowledge the pain and the hurt, but instead of actually thinking we can move through it, we're all very much stuck and stagnant in this place of just bonding around the experience. So my question to a lot of you, because I think about this a lot, if we look at how even this mentality is impacting globally, like our world, how we're choosing to view the world, how we're interacting with other people in the world. Think about for a second how I talked about how what happens to you puts on a set of glasses and now everything you see is influenced in a way by the set of glasses. All of this wounding that's happening to everybody and instead of moving out of it, we're kind of banding up in these groups of wounding and like, we have this wound, we have this wound it's actually influencing the way people are even perceiving reality, like interacting with other people, other groups, politics, uh, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds, culture, all of it. So I think it's interesting that right now you see so many people in the socio-political sphere really talking about 
this, you know, like we need to be in harmony and build this utopia. But really, if you look at what's actually happening right now and you try to look at it again, don't get so lost in the details. Step back, squint, look at the things that don't quite make sense that are pushing your brain against the cognitive dissonance. So you're like, wait a second. I know when I'm this close, it feels like it makes sense. But when I pull back, this doesn't fucking make sense. A utopian society, like real utopia, the way utopian societies are described in like every science fiction book, any type of metaphysical or religious or whatever digging you would do. Utopia comes when people have moved so deeply into their levers, levels of consciousness that they're able to self-regulate without any sort of oversight. So when every single person on this planet has gone from level one to level seven, and they understand all of these things about human interaction and existence, and they're not focused on this duality of existence, then people can be kind to each other, treat each other with respect without the need for governmental oversight. So I find it just interesting from just a purely observational standpoint that so many people are like, oh, like they just, we just want to bring peace and harmony. But really, if you look at it, a lot of the peace and harmony is creating division and these kind of like group identities of wounded elbows. And I'm not here to go too deeply into that. I just, as an example, I want you to look and see how things like this are impacted on a macro scale, meaning the big world. They're just reflections of what's internally happening to ourselves. If we're going through this own inner struggle, and then we have a bunch of friends that are all going through this internal struggle, and we're like, we're going to band together. If you look at the macro level, what we're experiencing and all this pain and isolation and pain and suffering and things that you're here because you want to move through, this is happening on a macro, huge fucking scale that needs work and attention. And to actively do that transformation and see the world as objectively as one can possibly see it, you have to start to do this work. So I actually think that it's interesting that so often we're kind of told that all the things that we think are happening, like they're meant to build you know, utopia and harmony and all these things, but really it's very much focused on more regulation and actually assumes the worst about humanity, which is in direct opposition to the, like moving actually through the levels of consciousness to gain a utopian society. So I just want everyone to think about when they're out there experiencing the world, looking at media, talking to friends, why are they trying to do this switcheroo of we're trying to create peace and harmony and utopia with extra regulation and every single person being assumed to be having some sort of ill intent or inability to be responsible for themselves. I just, I find it interesting and you'll start to see as you dig deeper into this work, you can't help but start to question your environment when you see how it's been very clear that they've raised you a certain way to stop thinking about these things. And I urge you to start to think about these things because Many of you are here because you are in pain and suffering and you do want to move past it. And to move past it, we also have to start questioning certain things about our experience that have always felt like reality to this moment. And then when you start to expand your consciousness and you're like, oh God, all these things used to make me feel really uncomfortable and I would run away from them. But now I've pushed through that cognitive dissonance and these things are starting to make more sense now. You can really expand your consciousness to move past some of those points of friction that you may have had earlier on. And in the same vein of what I was just talking about, just food for thought, and I was thinking about this literally just doing something random this morning. I find it really interesting that collectively we've decided that the term self-conscious is a negative word, right? Like, oh my God, she's so self-conscious. I'm so self-conscious. Self-consciousness, actually, if you think about the actual terms themselves, 
Self-consciousness is a great thing. But unfortunately, because of everything we've been talking about with the noise and the emotional you know, programming and all the fear messages and guilt and shame, your ability to be self-conscious brings all that noise and chatter in with you. But once you move that out, self-consciousness, the, the ability to be conscious of self and what you're doing, that should actually be something that we all strive for because that is a step on the way to self-regulation so that if we all wanted to be able to live in peace and harmony, we could do so because we have a new level of awareness of our own consciousness. So I just think it's interesting. Anytime you see that something that if you actually break it down to its roots, that word is being used against you in some way, it's probably worth digging into why that word or that area of inquiry is already being kind of slandered and used against you. Because if anything is important, a level of self-consciousness is actually important. It doesn't have to be a negative connotation as society would have you believe. Um, oh, wow. So many more questions. So a lot of people are writing in about um, how important they think this is for us as parents to really integrate more into how we're parenting our kids, which is something I'm really passionate about. I'm actually doing a two-day workshop at 1440 Multiversity in January. I'll post the dates on my website um, specifically on how all this stuff can come through your parenting and that we can hopefully build a generation after us that doesn't have to deal with a lot of these things. I think if there's anything that we as parents or even just caregivers of the world or caretakers of the world can learn, it's that our pain and suffering shouldn't be for nothing. We shouldn't hold ourselves in it and we shouldn't just be like, oh, well, all life is pain and suffering. We should at least do our part to contribute in a positive way to creating a different future for our kids, for all the generations, for the world at large. And I think it's the most disenfranchising concept and belief to believe that there's nothing you can do about it because that is just showing that you're stuck in that level two, level three consciousness. You can do everything about it, but you can only do things about it once you move out of that blockage yourself. So what does the brain do? What is the primary goal starting in childhood? And I know that we're almost out of time and we haven't even gotten to questions yet. So I'm gonna try to cruise through some of this stuff. If you guys have to go, I totally understand it is going to be recorded, so you'll get to watch the whole thing later, but I'm committed. I'm going to keep going until we're done. So a lot of people, I don't think, really understand what the brain's primary function is. So obviously, this is a very quick and dirty way of describing it, but that's how we're going to do things right now. So primary goal for the brain to process information to understand your environment. So remember, we talked about how the brain is a computer. Your brain's job is to learn to understand your environment. Number two, it takes in sensory inputs and experience that actually go into creating an operation manual of sorts, right? So let's say if you look at a car, right? A car gets built and then every car, especially now, has its own kind of computer system. It can tell you like if the gas is low, um, if you need windshield wiper fluid. So there's something that kind of is constantly scanning the car and scanning like the temperature outside to see if something needs to go back and adjust dynamically inside of the car. So it's basically what our brain is doing. And then the car needs to have an operating manual like this is how the car works. If you press here, this happens. If the car hits this, then this deploys to save the person inside. So our brain actually takes in sensory inputs from our environment to actually formulate an operating manual so that our bodies can exist. We know how to live in our world. Then from these inputs, we actually create rules. 
And these rules come from um, rapid and repeated exposure to our environment. So I'll use the example of, this is something that everybody can latch onto. Think of a child, right? Maybe like, let's say age two, and they've got a drink that's at the edge of the table and you're just kind of staring them down being like, don't you fucking push it off the table. Obviously you wouldn't say this to your kid. You'd be thinking it because you're not a, you're not a jerk. You're not going to swear your kid, right? And hypothetical. So you're like, don't you do it? Don't you do it? And they kind of look at you and they're like, mm-hmm. And then they're like, boom, look it off the table, right? It pours down the table and you're like, ah, God, I got to clean it up. Your kid's probably going to do that a few more times just to make sure every time I do this, this happens. It's the same reason that you would repeat a scientific experiment with controlled, you know, factors in the experiment to make sure that every time I do this, I get the same result. That happens in your brain when your brain is trying to understand your environment. It does this to keep you safe. So your brain is constantly creating rules about your environment based on repeated exposure to the stimuli around you. Then your brain uses these rules to keep you alive. That's like the most important thing that your brain does. That's why your brain exists is to keep you from dying. And the way it keeps you from dying is to operate with these rules. It's kind of like a safety protocol. Like don't do this, that happens. Don't do this, that happens. If this happens, make sure you do this so that this doesn't happen, you don't die. Then we go to step five. You use the rules to influence all of your decision-making, perception of reality, beliefs, and definitions to keep you safe. Here's the problem. The problem is, as a child, you're not in control of your environment, right? You're a kid. Your parents could be total a-holes. You could somehow have landed your baby-ass soul into a cult. You could have landed yourself into an environment where, as sweet as your mom is, she's a pushover and your dad's abusive and, you know, beats you with a belt. You don't have control over your child's environment. It's sad, but you don't. So what you're exposed to in your environment, it's not like everyone just has this like objective sweet you know unicorn existence where our brain has to learn rules about like when butterflies touch you it tickles you know most of us that's not the repeated exposure it's not when a butterfly hits your skin it tickles it's like when dad gets home and he smells like beer i get hit so maybe avoid dad when he smells like beer these are the rules that start to happen in our brain this is the formulation of emotional homeostasis Whatever we experience with the highest frequency in our childhood, knowing full well we don't have any control over it, these create these rules that are really, if you look at it, faulty rules. Because once you're in control of your environment, these aren't the same rules, theoretically, that you would have to be operating with to keep yourself safe. But you have all these rules from childhood still calling the shots and telling you what to do and how to label a person but many of them are completely faulty and don't have any business being there. What BREAK does is teaches you to figure out how they got there, how they're functioning and reveal them to you in a way that you can't run from anymore and teach you how to actually rewire your emotional responses. In a very simplified way, this is basically what happens when you're having a thought. You have some sort of sensory stimulation. Maybe somebody asked you a question or you were just kind of daydreaming or you heard a song. The sensory stimulation happens. This can be smell, touch, sound, taste, intuition. It goes to your brain. Your brain assigns some sort of definition or meaning. Then the meaning actually helps you form a belief. These are the rules. And then based on that rule, your possibilities, goals, and actions are then available to you. But your brain will hide any information and data that puts you at risk of moving into that belief to disprove it. That's what we do in break is once we figure out 
where those beliefs are that need you to actually build action steps in to go and actually rewire them and disprove them to you in a, rep in a repeated way, we can actually make some serious progress. So obviously we know by going through all this stuff that thoughts are clearly not just objectively true, they're not necessarily your own, and often they are an offshoot of this emotional homeostasis that really starts to run our lives into a really incredibly shitty pain and suffering place that you don't need to be living in. So this is really where it all goes wrong is in this source belief and how it influences all of our decision making and how we're choosing to perceive the world. So remember here that this perception of knowing or the experience of knowing doesn't actually mean truth. Like, I know that. Oh, I know that. I know that. How often do you know something and when you say it, you're like, fuck, I was wrong. Like a lot, maybe. So just remember that the experience of knowing something, all it means is that your brain has stopped reconciling information. So instead of your brain continuing to seek alternatives or to try to bump up against things to make sure that one's still true, your brain's just stopped the reconciling process. So that's what knowing means, is that you've just stopped reconciling information. But these can often be assumptions or conclusions you've erroneously jumped to or based on more of your emotional trauma. So. Thankfully, I got through at least all that stuff in our whew, hour and a half lecture. Now, let me start to get to questions, shall we? Um, let me, it is going to take me two seconds to read some of these. So there's going to be an awkward moment where I just kind of stare so that I can read. Um, do you have any type of break in the works for teens? We do. Um, it's something that I actually was invited to start doing at high schools in a pilot program over the next year. So I would like to build something that can be done in a capacity that's at least in some way supervised by parents at home. Um, and it will be based on uh, application process because it would be unfair of me to just, you know, think that I can go out there and blindly help a bunch of teens without having their parents involved, but also to know more about them and to get parental consent. So I'm going to be doing the pilot program at the high schools, which will just be kind of more like immersive workshop style. But we are going to be launching an online program that's specific for starting that process of self inquiry for teens. Um, Tina says, I feel like racism is about people being stuck in level one, then they dissociate with the oneness that they have with others. Well, there's a lot to this. Um, it's one of the topics that after people have gone through break, I feel like I need people to shift to a certain level of consciousness before I can even really have these conversations with anybody in a way that's like really objective and they can see where we're all trying to push things to as like a collective humanity instead of this kind of divisive like me and you and like you're different because of this and I'm different because of this in like a more positive way, constructive, productive. Um, so you are Dina right in a way. Um, it It is a lot of the racism itself and then claims of racism, they're all in a way divisive to the point where they discount our ability to all care about each other as humans. Um, I think in general, my biggest issue is not with, with you know, racism or anything like that. It's more in general, I feel like it's one layer deeper than that. It's just all group think, all group identity. If the group identity transcends your ability to do the work to figure out who you are, if you even go back and look at those levels of consciousness, it's like, because that they were in survival mode, 
they immediately jump to this like fake we so that the we consciousness or the group thing is kind of more of a codependent nature. It's not securely attached because they didn't actually go through all the steps. They went from survival mode and perceiving that they were being attacked or didn't have rights. So then they just bypassed two, three and went to four, but it's not a true four. It's a codependent latching on to this group identity where you haven't done the other steps to actually appreciate and honor other groups and their individuality. It just becomes more a group thing that I think can be really dangerous in our society. Um, Katie says, I'm struggling with how to end friendships which no longer serve me. So in the lecture that I'm going to give, um, I believe it's next week, that's really more like directly focused on relationships, communication, and break method. We're going to talk about energetic dysfunction and how to create action steps and boundaries to keep yourself energetically safe and protected in a relationship. So I would definitely tune into that one. And then also remember that that boundary part that comes in that level five consciousness where you care enough about the we to do the work to figure out what I'm doing that might be negatively impacting this relationship, what you're doing, so that you can start to create active boundaries. And in many cases with friendships, if you look at the, I usually encourage people to look at the lifetime of the friendship, right? So let's say you've been friends for five years. Over the five years, what does the energetic exchange look like? Is it like 50-50 giving and receiving? Like, do you give 50% of the time and then receive 50% of the time? Or are you consistently giving and they're always a taker? So look at, you know, the entirety of that relationship and try to decide over that course of time, is it usually 50-50 or can you look pretty clearly and realize that that person's a taker and you're a giver? Because whatever is one of the things that I, I think is interesting, and this is something that you hear a lot, especially in intimate relationship breakups, they're like, talking to you about all this dysfunction and like how unhappy they're and they're like I just don't want to break his heart he's going to be so sad or vice versa about the girl if you're experiencing dysfunction in the relationship based on exchange of energy right between you and this person right inside this container you have a hundred percent of your collective energy so if it's dysfunctional and you're giving 80 percent of the time and they're taking 80 percent of the time even if they're not labeling it as dysfunctional, if you're experiencing the dysfunction, they're experiencing the equal opposite. That's just the way energetic sharing goes. So just remember that when it comes to evaluating what's actually happening as an energetic exchange in the relationship, putting up boundaries in many cases, maybe saying like, you know what, this friendship isn't, it's not serving me in a way that's beneficial. We're not trying to go in the same direction. If you communicate that properly, with boundaries and with love to that person and create that distance that distance might exactly be the thing that makes them evaluate why they've been a taker and maybe that relationship has a chance to come back together or at least maybe you've had an opportunity to teach them that lesson for their next relationship so in either way voicing boundaries is really important okay spot on you surprised me this is way beyond booty but deeper into the healing micro macro cosmos interested in your program for deeper shifts for myself and becoming a practitioner to help others awesome our yeah our our practitioner program is awesome okay lauren says reminder to reproach my initial question okay heading back up there now i love that you speak to the esoteric um i've dive deeply into shadow work with my shamans and doing a lot with myself with that said I'm deeply drawn to your work i.e. yoga and break how'd break method be different than what I've been doing on my own so 
what I would say is that diving into shadow work and working with a shaman, I have a lot of people that come to me that are either already healers or have been, you know, deeply on a healing path for years. One of the things that seems to get missed is that with a lot of shamanic work and healing work, even though they are facilitating a lot of it and you're feeling the shift for yourself, there's not as much cognitive awareness of how and actually changing the internal chemistry that's linked into your reptilian brain and the emotions. So they're helping you bypass it in a way and you're feeling different and you're able to keep moving in your healing journey. But also in that way, let's say another thing comes into your space, knocks you off course. In that way, you then go back to them and be like, I'm just feeling a little off. And then they'd help you shift through something or talk through something. And you'd constantly have to go back versus this actually gives you the framework and tools to completely change your neurotransmitter patterns from your brain that are coming from the way you're labeling your environment based on childhood experience. So that then it shifts your lens of how you're perceiving the world and interacting after that point, which then gives you the framework so that when that perfect storm or something happens in your you know, future, instead of having to say like, oh, I'm just feeling a little off, I have to go to somebody, you actually understand what's happening and you're able to do it in real time. So you're able to consistently heal yourself and have the framework and tools to understand through consciousness what's happening. So whereas one can be powerful healing, and I'm not here to say anything differently about other healers that I know do wonders to contribute to people's health, physically, energetically, one tends to be a bit more of a bypass that can still have amazing results versus the other is a complete lexicon of language, words, understanding, and tools for you to learn how to do this for yourself, do it for others, and to never be in a position where you have to look to somebody else to heal you. It gives you back your sovereignty to be able to heal yourself. So hopefully that answered it. Um, my daughter has major anxiety, OCD, and a sleeping disorder at the age of seven. She's been diagnosed with overproduction of calcium in her kidneys after developing three kidney stones. Our city doesn't have the doctors to handle it, so we've had to travel to get her doctors. Who knew how to care for her? Now she is on a life of low-sodium diet and diuretic to control it. She was also helicoptered to a hospital. It's a three-hour drive. Okay, there's a lot more health stuff. Obviously, she had trauma this year, and she's also... Watched her dad, her hero, be in and out of hospital, spend a week at Vanderbilt. She's clearly had enough trauma in 2018 that myself, now by the age of 30, broke through level two. So how in the world can I help her cope? She's attached to objects almost more than people in a strange way that I don't understand any advice. Okay, so there's a lot to this. Um, and I'm actually going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to copy this question. And I'm going to email it to myself. Hold on one quick second. Plot twist. Because I want to be able to answer this a lot more in depth. And I actually have a couple of diagrams that I think will help you understand this. Because the way she is, the way she's attaching to objects like that is actually really common given the situation that she's in. Um, so in my practice, I would refer to this as a one for compensation. So because her life feels completely out of control right now, and it doesn't feel like how we talked about how the brain is constantly trying to test the same stimuli to make sure like, okay, every time I do this, this happens. And that's the rule. 
because all of that has been thrown out of whack for her, she's transferring that onto a physical object where she knows that that physical object is within her control and that she knows that she can depend on it. So she's creating a codependency with an inanimate object because at this point, people and existence in general are seeming to be inconsistent and thus scary and make her feel out of control. So that's really common. Um, I would love to help you more on this specific topic and I would love to have the chance to write out a, a deeper response to this because there's a lot going on. But one of the main things is that because there's been so much inconsistency and she doesn't feel safe and doesn't feel like she knows where she stands because it probably just feels to her like everything is going wrong. She's actually putting everything into an inanimate object to feel safe and secure, which is very, very common. Um, most of the kids that are really kind of like almost aggressively obsessed with a blanket or a stuffed animal, their attachment to that object came at a precarious time in their development where they might have had another one of those perfect storm events that I talk about where maybe everything was fine and everything was very consistent, but you and the husband started to get into a fight and maybe you got into a fight about a credit card bill and then one other thing happened and they just saw something that was out of the typical way of behaving for you. So they started to question, am I safe? This doesn't feel normal. And then all of a sudden you're like, here's a teddy bear. Next thing you know, they're completely addicted like a crack addict to a teddy bear because of this perfect storm situation. And it just immediately coinciding with the transfer of an inanimate object. This happens a lot. So important to remember that all of this is completely fixable. And one of my specialties is teaching people how to not only navigate out of trauma themselves, but how to properly language and parent another child out of trauma. So I hope I get to work with you more on this and I will um, do my best to answer this in another follow-up. I can post it on my Instagram. Um, but hopefully that helped with the inanimate object thing thing. Um, Okay, Darcy, I've learned so much tonight because I keep reading about this. I wonder if you believe the partial solar eclipse tomorrow can be contributing to you in any way to relationships ending. I'm a Leo and he is an Aquarius, the two signs that are being affected the most. So here's the thing. I, I believe that all those things play a part. Just like, let's say, you know, I've had psychics that I've talked to in the past. Let's say in a very loose way. My interpretation of the way psychics work is that in that moment, based on every single person's consciousness at that time, what they're telling you is the most likely thing to have, most likely thing to happen based on everybody's consciousness in that moment. But that doesn't mean that we don't all have free will. And if one person's consciousness changes and then that influences another person's, maybe that reality gets a little bit further away, a little bit further away. So can that psychic be right like 70 to 80% of the time? Yeah, maybe if people stay really stuck in their ways, which having looked at this consciousness lecture, a lot of people do get very stuck in their ways and they're not really pushing into their conscious expansion. So that's my view of kind of psychic intuition in much the same way. If we look at astrology and its impact on our bodies, energetically, physically, emotionally, et cetera, are those things, you know, likely happening in some collective way for people? Yes. But I also think people put way too much stock into letting what they're reading then further impact their experience. So just like we've been talking about what happens to you in childhood with repeated exposure, 
puts on a certain set of glasses for you to actually perceive the world around you. If you've just read how fucked up your month of August is going to be, when you go out into your world in the back of your mind through your glasses, you're going to be like, well, doom is coming. Doom is coming in every turn. Relationships are probably ending. So you might be, for example, more inclined to read into somebody's body language and assume something about them because in the back of your mind, you're like, well, fuck, my relationship's going to end anyways. So I'm not saying that astrology isn't real. I 100% believe that all those things influence at some degree our energy, our body, our emotions, of course. But if you put too much stock in that and let it then go back and influence your brain and the way you're labeling your environment, you fuck yourself anyways. Um, Nicole says, not a question. This is exactly what I needed and this came into my life exactly as I was becoming aware of the impact of my childhood and my current emotional responses. Awesome. Christina says, thank you. I've been trying to practice this for years, yet I have trouble sticking with my boundaries because of rational reasoning from the other side. My partner body issues keep coming up hard, pain in various places. So that was the person's response to the one needing to kind of cut some ties with um, a relationship that's no, that was no longer serving them. Um, how would you describe the difference between dreams and visions? Meaning when I have done grounding shocker work, if I believe and see what is possible in my life, am I full of it or is it real? Okay, there's a lot to this. And I think, again, if we go back to these levels of consciousness, I feel like even the conversation of manifestation and everything comes back to this as well. So let's say you do some chakra work and you're in meditation and you, something comes up for you and that's something that, let's say you label that as positive and you're like, oh, that comes up and I want that to happen. If you have not done the work to stop your fear messages and childhood programming from coming in and trying to actually basically hijack your behavior to make that scenario the least possible likely to happen, which is what happens for most of us, or let your fear messages come in and question like, are you able to do any of those things? That's never going to happen for you. That's one of the ways in which are a bit like what the next step should have been to manifest and focus and focus your behavior and your mental bandwidth on to make that happen. If you saw that meditation, it's something that you want. That should be the next step if you're going through these levels of consciousness. If you're not, and you're still letting all of your fear programming and childhood experiences kind of put this autopilot hijack response on you, you're more likely to sit there and question it. Like, is it real? Does it fucking matter if it's real or not? Like if you saw it and you want it, go for it. Does it doesn't matter that goes back to that duality thing non-duality like if it's real or not if you saw it in your meditation it's something you want to go after now it's your job to be active in your pursuit of that thing and use all of your tools and your consciousness to go get it um based on everything that you've talked about and what i've heard about break method i feel like i've spent my whole life unconscious even from before tangible memories is that possible and am I a lost case? Absolutely not. Girl, listen, most people, myself included, are living lives in that kind of unconscious zombie way. And some of us, maybe we've gotten out of it or we've had like bits and pieces and then like something throws us off, throws us off track and we start to question ourselves. We're not very confident. This is an ebb and flow thing that happens to most of us. You can absolutely move yourself out of it. I've watched literally some of the biggest assholes, like I said, that come into break where I'm like, oof, this person is going to have a rough go. They've surprised me all the time because break method works. It's shocking. Um, 
can break method help with performance anxiety? I'm a violinist and I'm struggling with auditions. Absolutely. I've actually worked with two, I think both honestly cellists. One also had trichotillomania where she was pulling her hair out. Um, this is something that I've worked with a lot, performance anxiety. It comes from very specific childhood etiology matched with obviously either fear of failure, fear of um, actually having all the things you want ripped away from you. So yes, I've dealt with this before, even when it comes to not just performance anxiety, but performance anxiety leading to either picking at your skin or picking, pulling your hair out. I've dealt with both. Um, I'm laughing at the statement, understanding the fuckery in our brains. Hilariously accurate, super accurate. Um, say, so thankful this is recorded because I have to get off the webinar and want to go back through all of this. How can we help our children work through these levels of minimal damage? Um, I actually teach a whole segment on parenting through the break lens and how to prevent this, or if some of the damage has already been done, how to help children reconcile in a new way to move forward so that this damage doesn't follow them. Um, without obviously taking too much time. The simplest way to describe it is that once the damage has been done, most of the damage lies in the fact that in the moments that they perceived trauma, you approached it with that sense of duality, right? Like for me to be right, you have to be wrong or like, no, you did that wrong or you know, a child might perceive that they saw something a certain way between mommy and daddy, and then you sit there and invalidate their reality, like that didn't happen. So there's a lot of this invalidating of realities. So you almost take away from their ability to properly reconcile their perceived traumatic experience. So a lot of the way to undo the damage is to actually go back with that perception of non-duality and learn how to ask the right questions to inquire what their brain made it mean in certain ways and certain moments in time so that you can create that kind of like in-between communication to help your realities reconcile back to a place where safety, security, and understanding of the environment is restored. But I go into that, that's like a gross oversimplification, but we go over that in the break method workshop. Um, your personal narrative sounds like something I've been reading about from Michael Singer called The Personal Voice. It's crazy how as I get more into exploring spiritual universal consciousness, how all these things start to tie together. True. Um, let's see. I feel like I've been asking this for years. Okay, I must have missed a question. When you spoke a moment ago about the need for validation, constantly asking, am I enough? I would love to know how you would address this for children. My seven-year-old daughter has a constant need for validation. And I'm curious if it's because of my own need for that she has picked up on it. So in some ways, this can be a mirroring. Um, but most often, this is not a mirroring, but a need to validate their sense of self that hasn't been properly formed yet. So this usually has more to do with, let's say, and we just talked about the levels of consciousness. I'll shift gears for a second and talk more about development in chakra anatomy terms. So at age seven, your daughter has just gone through the phase that's really focused on basic survival. So that very like I am phase to then moving into differentiation and realizing that like I am different from you, which is where she could start to really explore her identity, given that all of the environmental 
you know, stimuli are in the right place and that she's not stuck in survival mode, which, you know, I would need more information about her childhood and relationship with you and dad and things like that. But assuming she's not in survival mode and she is starting to explore identity, if she starts to see, for instance, people pleasing in you, which usually coincides with seeking external validation, because if you're not getting your fix, you'll kind of like calculate a little bit, change this a little bit to see if you can get that validation. So if she sees your identity fluidity, it might be harder for her to keep walking that road. So it might be why she's mirroring, but she's not just mirroring. She's mirroring because she's trying to figure out who she is, which is actually exactly what she's supposed to be doing at age seven. She's supposed to be exploring how am I different than you? So some of that mirroring might actually just be coming because she sees you doing that in an effort to for her to try to understand how you are different. So if your identity is a bit fluid and you're kind of taking on other people's characteristics and being a bit of a chameleon, she's having, her brain is having a harder time deciding in that rule, I am this way and you are that way because you're kind of waffling like this. So I wouldn't say in this scenario that she's just always gonna be seeking external validation forever. It's natural that she's doing that in the context of trying to figure out who she is and how she is different from you if you're kind of waffling in this moment. Um, I work with a 911 dispatcher. It is very mentally exhausting and I have a hard time having emotions when out of work. Any suggestions? So absolutely what we talked about, about your brain kind of shifting into that unconscious space. There's a part of you, obviously, that is having some of that sympathetic nervous system activation with how much you have to perceive other people's verbal, physical, energetic fear, because you're basically like dealing with all their fear on the phone. So I would go out of your way to give yourself some time to kind of, even if it's, I know this is kind of one or more of those intangible esoteric things, but really try to almost like cleanse out other people's energy and send everybody some healing energy, but also acknowledge to yourself that Everybody else in this moment is not your responsibility. And for you to be able to keep taking care of others, you've got to give yourself time to reset because you probably take a lot of that fear and sadness home with you. So if you can kind of let their fear and sadness go and know that that's not because you're being some like self-centered a-hole, but because you genuinely need to reset so that you can keep showing up for your job, which is challenging, you can kind of prioritize your self-care without that also having to mean that you're an insensitive asshole that doesn't care about all these people. And sometimes that line is the hard one to draw. Monica says, okay, busy, I'm sold. Can you speak to the cost and the time to complete break? I'm sure you have heard a million times that people don't have the time to complete it. Um, I'll get to that in two seconds. Um, one more second. Because if you cause your own trauma, you can't process that. But if someone else hurts you, you feel like it sucks so much that you suffer because of someone else, certain thinking patterns. Okay. So we're going to go like this. And I still have, by the way, all these audience questions. So we're obviously going to have to have another lecture. By the way, all these audience questions are also here. So I could literally do this for months. Um, but this is also what I love to do. So I'm not complaining. It's my favorite. So on the topic of break method so break method is obviously my baby it's what i care about the most in the world other than my kids and you know saving the world and shit. um this program is something that's done either online it takes about three to four months it really depends on how much you push yourself um the minimum is three months 
four months is not really the maximum because every time if you enroll for break online, you're allowed to repeat the entire thing a second time for free. So theoretically, if you wanted it to be eight months, it would be eight months um, still for that one price. The online program is very in-depth. It's 60 plus hours of lecture content. It's self-paced to an extent, but it is broken up into units and sections. There's homework. There's a lot of check-ins. You've got small group sessions. You've got lectures with me, Q&A. So there's a lot of this. So if you feel, and actually, I know I'm just kind of reading your questions, but in the break context, I'm actually able to unmute you and we talk about it out loud. So it's very interactive. It's not like you're just on an island and we're like, good luck, hopefully you can do it. There's a lot of interaction. And it also includes a two day live event at the end. Um, we actually only hold them twice a year. So depending on what semester you're in, um, you can, go to whatever the very next break live event is. Um, if you're if the break live event is happening while you're in the program, you can go to that one. Um, but you can also go to any break live event in the future. So you once you've paid for the program, you can always go to one in the future. So if you can't make that next one, anytime in the future, you can use that ticket to the live event. Um, I also do two day intensive workshops. We have one coming up in Providence, Rhode Island in September. These are really, just dipping your toe in the water. I've had people have unbelievable breakthroughs in the two-day events, uh, but most people do the two-day event and then realize that all of this shit is very apparent to them. And they were really coming to the two-day event just to see if this was bullshit. And then they're like, oh my God, it's not bullshit. And then they do the whole thing because really you've got to, I mean, to me, why do you know like the baby version when you can just like do the whole thing and make sure that this is something that you can actually apply to your life every day for the rest of your life um so we do the two-day intensive workshops which are great if you're just like is this bullshit do i want to test it out totally fine with me if you do that and you want to keep going with the program you can use what you paid for the workshop to apply it to the online course so you can use it as a deposit you don't have to pay for both so if you do it and you're like actually i want to do the whole thing no harm, no foul, you just apply that to the future workshop fee. Um, we do offer payment plans. I think right now we have, um, you can pay in two installments, three installments, but also we're not in the habit of turning people down. If this is something that you want and you can tell Adrian and I exactly how you plan on going after it, I've had people take, you know, like 10 month payment plans. I just want you to commit to yourself and follow through. So if you have special circumstances, and you need to work out a slightly different payment plan, you can email contact at busygold.com and you know, plead your case with Adrian and see if you guys can work something out. I want you guys to show up for yourselves and be invested. And as long as you're showing a clear path of like, I can't make it work in three payments, but I can make it work in five, we will do everything we can to work with you. So for break method, I work consistently with people that have dealt with any sort of perceived trauma, PTSD, addiction, eating disorders, but also just kind of the general, like everything in my life on paper looks great, but I kind of just feel sh like shit and lost. I don't under understand why I just feel so empty. Break's great for that too. Relationship issues. We do have a couples track um, where it is basically you pay for one and a half. As long as you're doing it with your couple, you get put into different small groups. So you're going through the program together, having those those things to work on together and a new language to communicate about it. But all of your personal private shit is kept completely separate from your partner because you would be in different groups. So you're able and guided to come together, but your experience would still be individual. 
also just general lack of confidence, overall seeking of self-inquiry, etc. So um, I'm going to be doing another webinar next week that's more specific about how the break program works, all that. The registration is open right now, so if you want to go to breakmethod.com um, and sign up, you can do that now. As I said, you can do pay in full, two payment plan, or three payment plan. It's totally up to you. If you're curious, you want to see if it works for you, and you want to set up a 20-minute discovery call, you'd go to the link on here, which is bit.ly slash break discovery call. You'd be chatting with Adrian, who's been through the program herself. She went through the program uh, while she was in the midst of losing her husband to cancer. She's got four babes, um, and by babes, I mean kids. She's a badass, and she completely changed her life in the program, and she has a wealth of knowledge about how the program works and can absolutely help guide you to figure out what the best way to move into this work is. Um, regardless of whether I see you in break or not, uh, I really hope that you learned something in this webinar and that you have something to take away from it. I'm going to throw the handout into the PDFs right now. If you just give me two seconds, um, you will be able to download this PDF. We're also going to be emailing out the replay. The replay takes typically about three to four hours to transcode, and it's already six. So I would keep an eye out in your email tomorrow for the recording sometime in the morning. Uh, we get into the office at nine, so sometime in the morning you should be good to go. Um, I also will take a look at all these questions, print them out, and hopefully try to address them on future webinars. I really appreciate you guys hanging in there with me for two hours. I'm pretty impressed that we had over 90% retention for the last two hours. So I know that some of this info is heady and I appreciate you sticking with me on this journey. And I really hope that I get a chance to work with you. Um, this is really just the tip of the iceberg and it's what I'm the most passionate about. So either way, I hope I get to see you, shake your hand, give you a high five or work with you, whatever the context is. Thank you for being here and I'll see you next time. Thanks for checking out this week's episode of The Modern Good. To find out more about Break Method, head to breakmethod.com and to check out my workshops and public speaking schedule, busygold.com. I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.